So we're in the Gospel of John. But there are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why are there four Gospels? Uh, there are four Gospels because each Gospel has a different emphasis. Each Gospel has a certain purpose. If you watched any of the playoff football games this past weekend, man, there was a lot of, a lot of action and there was some plays and we wanted them to be, the officials to call them correctly. And this is where it's really, really helpful to have multiple cameras and multiple camera angles, is it not? A lot of times when the game is beginning, they'll start with a wide angle shot and you see the entire stadium from uh, end zone to end zone. And they pull back, you can see the crowd, you can see the whole thing wide angle. But when they need nine yards to get a first down, you don't want a wide angle lens. Especially when the ball is thrown low and the guy reaches to get it and it looks like he's gotten it. But wait a minute, did he juggle that ball? And so what happens is that they'll give you another camera angle. And it's not wide angle, but what they do is they, uh, they zoom in tight so that you'll see the hands, you'll see the reach, you'll see the cleats, you'll see the brand, you'll sh see the shoelaces, and you'll see the, um, um, you, you, because they're stopping the clock, you, you'll see the sideline marker. But it's real, real tight. Did he, did he drop it? Did he, did he pull it in? And then, yes, he did. First down. And I mean, and we're on pins and needles wanting to see what's going to happen. That's what you got in the four Gospels, believe it or not. There are four different cam, uh, camera angles. In fact, Warren Wearsby, the great commentator that, uh, gosh, he, he writes such great stuff. Warren Rearsby wrote this a number of years ago. The writers of the four Gospels have given us snapshots of our Lord's life on earth for no complete biography could ever be written, according to John 21, which says, all the things Jesus did, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. Matthew wrote with his fellow Jews in mind and emphasized that Jesus of Nazareth had fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. But Mark wrote for the busy Romans. Luke wrote his gospel for the Greeks and introduced them to the sympathetic son of man. It was given to John, the beloved disciple, to write a book for both Jews and Gentiles, presenting Jesus as the son of God. We know that John had Gentiles in mind as well as Jews because he often interpreted Jewish words or customs for his readers. So you see, they each had different emphasis. They had different purposes. They had different camera angles. And there are, what we looked at last week, the feeding of 5,000 is mentioned in all four gospels. What we're looking at tonight in John 6, where Jesus walked on the water, it's mentioned in three out of the four gospels. Uh, John focuses in, he zooms in. And there are some details in the story that John doesn't give, but Matthew gives. It's just four different angles. And John, who wrote 30 or 40 years after the other gospel writers, knew that most of his audience would be familiar with their accounts. This is fascinating stuff. But it's camera angles. It's emphasis. So tonight, we're going to be in John 6. In fact, I want to go there first and read verses 15 to 21. But then we're going to turn over to Matthew and read the same account in Matthew 14, beginning with verse 22. So let's go to John chapter 6. And this is a very well-known account. If you look at verse 15, 
And remember now, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And verse 15 says, So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. I mean, he just fed the 5,000. This was incredible. Uh, the Jews were tired of Roman oppression. They wanted their own king. They'd been told by some of the rabbis that when the Messiah would come, he'd be a political king. And I mean, who, who better than Jesus? I mean, he, he does all these miracles. This is incredible. He, he feeds people. He takes care of them. I mean, this is a socialist state. We're ready to go. I mean, really, that's what they were thinking. Uh, Jesus, perceiving they were intended to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. So where the feeding of the 5,000 took place, Capernaum's up on the north side of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And there are different places you can visit, different mountain sides. And we know from the text, when you really look at it carefully, they were to the east of Capernaum. They're going to get into the boat and they're going to go west. After getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It was only seven or eight miles. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And apparently they were going to meet Jesus after he was done praying somewhere along uh, the coastline. And so they were probably rowing within a mile of the coastline. And uh, it, it, they could see him. They could, you know, it, it was an easy row, quite frankly, for these guys who spent most of their lives, Peter and the others who were fishermen, on the Sea of Galilee. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. On the Sea of Galilee from this north side, uh, the way the topography is, and you have the Golan Heights, and you've got Mount Hermon, and you've got the winds coming down from Lebanon, and the Sea of Galilee is almost 700 feet below sea level. And those winds come flying across, and then they drop. And within a matter of minutes, you have major league storms on that sea. I mean, even now, they make sure when a storm is coming, you tie up a boat with a motor, you tie it up tightly, or it'll just break loose. The, the, the wind is incredible. The waves are churning. They're tumultuous. Uh, earlier, earlier, they were in the boat with Jesus, and Jesus fell asleep. You remember that? And the storm, you know, they thought they were going to die. Lord, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? They were panicked, utterly panicked. Lord, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? Now, what's the answer to that? Well, of course he cares. He's proven that. Of course he cares. But when you're panicked, you're not thinking straight. You're just panicked. Lord, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? And what does Jesus do? He looks at him and he says, where's your faith? Well, when he was doing all the miracles on the shore, they had all kinds of faith. What a question. Where is your faith? It's like, where's your key, where are your keys? Where's your phone? Where's your faith? Gosh, I left it on the beach. I left it on the seashore. <laughs> I mean, this is just real down there stuff. So they had already seen Jesus. And then, oh, by the way, what did Jesus do? He spoke to the storm and what happened? instantaneous calm and now who are they afraid of they're afraid of him not afraid of the storm they're afraid of him who is this what's the son of God it's the one who created the world it's the one who created Israel it's the one who created the topography the wind the stars it's God that's who it is no big deal you tell your dog to sit he tells the storm to be calm you see he's God so these storms would come down and they would come down frequently and here's another storm. So they're just anticipating, you know, they're going to roll along the coastline, get over to Capernaum, pick up Jesus. After getting into the boat, verse 17, they started the cross. 
It became dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles. Now what you have to understand about this, they were rowing in the wrong direction. They wanted to go west, but because of the wind, they couldn't fight the wind, and they were blown further south in the sea, and uh, they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And this has been, as, as we'll see in a minute, this has been going on for a while. And they're rowing for hours and hours, and they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and they can't fix this. They don't have the ability to fix it. They don't have the ability to navigate it. So they're about worn out. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. It's me. It's the Son of God. Don't be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Did you catch that? He got into the boat. These guys are exhausted. They're fatigued. They're, they're, they're three, four miles away from where they want to be. They're out of gas. And immediately they're at their destination. That's a miracle. Let's go over to uh, Matthew 14. We'll get another camera angle here. Paul Harvey used to do a, uh, you know, the news. As I recall, it was on WBAP at noon. And then later in the day, he would do um, a short program called The Rest of the Story. And there was no one like Paul Harvey. And you're driving down the road, and he's telling this story, and within about 30 seconds, he's gripped you by the throat. And you're listening, and I mean, you're just, I mean, and the tension's building, and the tension's mounting. And it's just about ready to get to the crescendo. And, all, and then he'll say, and in a moment, <laughs> the rest of the story. And you've driven into a ditch by now. <laughs> and a commercial or two, and then he'll come back on and give you the astonishing rest of the story. Matthew 14 is the rest of the story, verse, beginning with verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land. We know from John, it was three to four miles battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. They couldn't go the direction they wanted to go. They were being, being blown off course. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost, it's a phantom. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. And now, the rest of the story. Matthew zooms out, gives us another angle. You know, John's over here just focused on the sideline and the shoes and the hands, and it's real tight. Matthew's going to zoom back and give us more detail. John knew this detail. He was there. But you see, he had a different purpose in writing. So this is interesting. And by the way, in verse 25... It says, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night was 3 to 6 a.m. So they've been rowing all night. 27, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. That's a miracle and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of 
little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you were certainly God's son. The, this miracle of Jesus walking on the water is actually four miracles in one. William Hendrickson has written this. Number one, Jesus walks upon the sea without suspending the laws of gravity because he controls them in the interest of the kingdom. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He created all things. All things were made by him and for him and through him. So we looked last week at his absolute power. So he walks upon the sea. Secondly, he causes Peter to walk upon the sea. Third, he reveals himself as master of the storm, for when he enters the boat, the storm ceases immediately. And number four, he conquers even space. For when he enters the boat, it's on the shore immediately. Now, no wonder <laughs> they thought he was God. And you see, they're in a process, and like us, they were slow learners, and they didn't really learn what they should have learned from the feeding of the 5,000, because later Jesus is going to feed another group, and they're kind of astonished, you see, because they didn't get it the first time around. And the Lord is very patient with us, isn't he? He's long-suffering. Um, what is going on here in this account where Jesus walks on the water. What, what is going on is that their faith is being tested. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 2 makes a statement. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Well, that's certainly my response to trials. It, actually, it isn't, and it's not yours either. Consider it joy when you encounter various trials. Notice, but notice how specific it is. It, it says, some translations say, count it as joy. Others say, consider it as joy. See, that's something you do with your mind. Christianity is a thinking man's belief system. You've got to think in the Christian life. Christianity is not feeling. It's not uh, based on emotion. Isaiah says, come let us reason together. Come let us think together. So when, when you get blindsided by something you didn't see coming, bad news, the loss of a job or the test come back and you've got cancer or a, a kid who is going to rehab for the third time and you thought you were through that and any all these things that hit us and shock us and stun us and hurt us, Consider it joy, count it as joy. Well, it certainly doesn't say feel it as joy. Some people misunderstand this. I mean, Christianity is uh, very rational, it's very logical. There are weird Christians, but God is not weird. There are weird Christians who say really weird things. God's not weird, Jesus is not weird. So count it joy when you encounter various trials. So how do you do that? Well, immediately, I mean, we're human. We get bad news. We don't immediately count it joy. We're disappointed. We're shocked. We're stunned. We can't believe it. And, and we're just, we get knocked down and we're trying to assimilate it and think it through and recover from the shock. And, but, but you see, you get your feet under you eventually. And depending on how long you've been walking with the Lord, and when you're a new believer, you know, this is all brand new stuff. Uh, but we're to grow in our faith. We're to mature in Christ. And the longer you walk with Christ, and the longer you get to know him and his faithfulness and his promises, and that he's watching over his word to perform it, and, and that he is the bread of life, and he is the manna. And what is manna? It's a well-timed help. That even in our darkest moments, he's there. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Never. Never. It's a shock to us. It's not a shock to him. 
So you get knocked down and then you get back on your feet and you're trying to make sense of this. And what happens is you've got to start thinking biblically. You hear the doctor give you the C word, cancer. So I heard that word a few years ago. Now, if I had heard that when I was 25, I would have handled it a lot differently than I did a few years ago because I got some miles on the tires with the Lord. We've been down the highway. Uh, you learn about his faithfulness and, and things that would, I'm not saying it doesn't affect you, but it doesn't necessarily earthquake you the way it would have done 30 years ago. Because, you know, through it all, as Andre Crouch said, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. I thank him for the mountains. I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms he brought me through in every situation. God brought consolation to let me know my trials come to only make me strong. And that's absolutely true. So count it joy. You get knocked down and you're kind of stunned, you're kind of shocked, but then you start thinking biblically. You're using your mind and you're interacting with God's truth. And you start thinking through from a biblical perspective. All right, what's going on here? This is a shock to me. I never saw this coming. It's not a shock to God at all. This is part of God's plan. God has a very specific plan for all of our lives. And we're on the mountaintop sometimes, and other times we're in the valley. In Ecclesiastes, it says, consider the work of God. Who can straighten what he has bent? We all have things in our lives that are bent, and we pray and ask God to straighten them out. Consider the work of God who can straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity, be glad. In the day of adversity, consider, think. For God has made the one as well as the other. So God uses all things in our lives. So you get knocked down, you get stunned, you get shocked. Count it joy. See, that's using your mind. Initially, you're just trying to get your feet under you. You're just trying to figure out what happened here. What, what happened? It's like... It's like getting T-boned in an intersection. You know, you're just kind of stunned. But then you start getting your feet under you. And you start thinking biblically. Lord, this is no shock to you. You've got something in mind. As, as disappointing, as hard, as shocking as this is. As for me, I trust in you, O oh Lord. I say that you are my God. My times are in your hand. I trust you with my life. That's how you do that. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing there's the mind, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance. Christian life is not a sprint. It's a very, very long race. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the Lord tests our faith in order to give us endurance. If you've been here in this Bible study, I've, I've mentioned this before, but I knew a guy years ago who would run ultramarathons. Uh, he, he, uh, an ultramarathon, you run 100 miles without stopping. And this guy looked normal. <laughs> he really did. But you know, somebody, you look deep in that guy's eyes and you'd see the word tilt. I mean, something was not quite right. He was about to do the one around Lake Tahoe on the Nevada side, up the Sierras, down the side, all the way around Lake Tahoe, 100 miles without stopping. There's one that goes from Death Valley, lowest point in the continental United States, to Mount Whitney, the highest peak in the continental United States. They go down, up. That's insane. So in order to do that, he was very disciplined. He'd get up at 4 o'clock every morning, and he would... Uh, He'd run 20 miles, six days a week. Before breakfast, he'd run 20 miles. It's just what he did. 
See, if you're in, now I would get in my car and I would drive 20 miles. This guy would run 20 miles before breakfast. Why was he doing that? Because he was gonna run an ultra marathon every three months. If you get up and run every morning 20 miles and then once every quarter you run 100 miles, you can do it. Why? Because you have built up endurance. That's what this miracle is all about. These four miracles in one. Faith is being tested. So we're going to notice some things. I want to look at this test of faith, which is the two passages we just read. And I want to give you eight ingredients that often make up a test of faith. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you. And then we'll work through it real quick. A test of faith often includes darkness. A test of faith often involves delay. A test of faith often involves difficulty. A test of faith always has a destination. A test of faith, because we're human, includes discouragement. A test of faith involves distraction. And a test of faith will involve doubt. There are different kinds of tests. There are different degrees of testings. There are different severities of testings. But testings are designed to mature us. Testings are designed to strengthen us. Testings are designed to make us fit spiritually. They're designed to build spiritual muscle because it's a very, very long race that we're in and we are in a race. So let's go back to John 6. And again, let's just read through the text and then we'll pick up these different ingredients. So Jesus, I'm in 15 now of John 6. Perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So let's go back to camera angles. Let's just stop right there. Um, he, he, he's going to go up to the mountain to pray. He disperses the crowd that wants to make him king. He goes stealth. He takes control. And he tells the disciples to get in the boat and head over towards... Bethsaida, and then they'll pass Bethsaida, and then they'll get to Capernaum. So that's what's going on here. Now, what's important to understand is that when they got in that boat, they had no idea what was coming. But Jesus knew what was coming. He always knows what's next. He knows all things. He knows everything about your life from the womb to the tomb. Psalm 139.16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance when you were sperm and an egg before you showed up on ultrasound. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in thy book, they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So the Lord has a plan for you. He has a plan for the guy next to you. He has a plan for me. He has a plan for your wife, all your kids, all your grandkids. He's got a plan. Now we have a plan. We tend to make our plans, and we really like our plans. Proverbs 16 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. That's why God will often interrupt your plans. Uh, why would he do that? Because it also says in Proverbs 16, There is a way that seems right to a man. This is the way I'm going to go. This is what I'm going to do with my life. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death, destruction. So God in his mercy will interrupt our plans. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. They're getting ready to go into a storm they know nothing about. Now, if you get the camera angle here, the white angle. So Jesus, here's the Sea of Galilee on the north side. He's on a hill up there praying. All right? It's like a wide angle shot at the stadium. Look at it in the entire stadium from end zone to end zone. Jesus is on the hillside alone praying. They're about to enter a great testing of their faith, a great storm, a great trial. 
What about us? We go through trials. Some of you guys are in a trial right now, maybe the biggest of your life. And, and all of these words kind of ring a bell with you. Darkness, your life's never been this dark. A delay, you keep praying and asking God and help, and, and it's like he's, he's checked out. Difficulty, you've never been in difficulty like this. And we begin to wonder, where is God? Has he forgotten about me? You know, it, it's interesting if you look at Romans chapter 8. We get the wide-angle view about our lives when we're going through anything in life. A phenomenal chapter. The truth in Romans 8 is such a comfort. But notice if you read Romans 8.26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should. A lot of times during your testing of your faith, you lose all perspective and you don't even know how to pray. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do, not, we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. For he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So you may not be clear on what the will of God is, but the Holy Spirit prays for you according to the will of God when you're all the time, when you're in a trial. But then go to verse 34. Not only does the Holy Spirit pray for you, but Jesus prays for you, just as he did on the hillside when they were in the storm. Verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who was at the right hand of, the, of God, who also intercedes for us. So he's praying for us all the time. It's remarkable. He hasn't forgotten you. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's got it under control. You didn't see it coming. He knew it was coming. He ordained it. And that trial has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. We're not always in perpetual trial. There are lessons to be learned in a trial, and we never know how long the trial is going to be, but I will say this to you. You want to be teachable in a trial. And you don't want to be playing games with the Lord. And you don't want to be covering hidden sin because he knows all about it. You want God's favor, and he wants to know your heart. It's, it's not a time to be playing church. So you want a teachable heart, you want a teachable spirit. When I was in my early 30s and I went through that depression that took me two and a half, three years to come out of where I was crying three, four hours a day. I'd never been like that in my life. I, I was, I mean, I thought I was going to, I had no reference point. This came out of nowhere. It hit me like a tsunami. And I, I was just stunned. Um, I, I thought I was going to wind up in an institution somewhere. And then, uh, I, I remember the day I poured apple juice for Josh in his high chair and I spilled it and I started crying. I mean, I was falling apart. And Mary said, you know, Steve, you probably ought to call Sonny. Sonny was the biblical counselor who was a member of our church that I would send a lot of people to go talk to. Did I ever go see Sonny? <sighs> Not me. I had it together. <laughs> but man, I'll tell you what, I was desperate. And I went in and talked with him. I said, I'm crying all the time like a little girl. And you know, da, da, da. And he's listening to me. And he said, well, yeah. He said, Steve, this is a moderate depression you're going through. I went, moderate? What, what, do, you, what do you mean moderate? Moderate? Are you out of your mind? And he said, well, you need to understand one of the signs of moderate depression is anger. That's what he said. <laughs> I didn't know that. All I knew, this is a moderate to me. Is it moderate to cry three, four hours a day and not stop? He said, Steve, let me tell you why it's moderate. He said, what did you do? Just tell me what you did this morning when you woke up. I said, well, I got out of bed and he said, stop right there. He said, you got out of bed. I have some clients who have not gotten out of bed in months. They're so debilitated. I'd never heard of that. 
how long is this going to go on? He said, it, something like this, it'll be a couple years, two and a half, three years, you'll come out of it. AIDS had just uh, happened in the homosexual community. And he said, you've been reading about this AIDS stuff. And, yeah, it, and it, it's the immune system. I said, yeah, I read that. He said, this is an emotional AIDS. The things that normally would not affect you, they affect you, but not to this level. But it's a series of events. And we talked about that. All the things that had happened over the last year. And he said, yeah, that's, uh, even the big trucks on the highway have a low limit. And they pull them over and weigh them. Because if you put too much weight, even on the largest of tractor trailers, it'll break down. And that's what's happened. But you'll get through it. The Lord's with you. And you're going to learn some things. And you'll be a better man because of it. Man. It was good for me that I was afflicted. David said. And I say that too. I had no idea that the Lord had planned for me. I thought I would always be a pastor. Problem was, I wasn't real good at it. But I figured, you know, there's always another church. Anyway, I just figured I'd be a pastor. I mean, what else? I wouldn't be in ministry. I had no idea that God had planned for me to pastor for a few more years, and then he was going to put me in the men's ministry. And I, I mean... And I wrote this book, hadn't planned on writing the book, but I had a major disappointment and got steered to writing this book for men. And the whole time, the providence of God was working. And I started doing conferences all over the country. In the next 25, 30 years, did somewhere between five and 600 men's conferences. And it was interesting. I never told the story about depression because I was embarrassed about it. I, wouldn't talk, I didn't talk about it publicly. But one day at a conference, and I don't know what happened, but I let my guard down, and I, mentioned, I started telling a story about going into depression. And, you know, I went about 10 sentences, and I thought, wait a minute. I don't want to do this. But I couldn't just cut it off. I had to kind of tell the story. I was amazed at how many guys wanted to talk with me afterwards because that's where they were. I want to say 95% of the time that I do a conference and I would tell that story, I'd have a significant interaction with a guy who was going through the same thing. And he was absolutely clueless. He, he, was, he was frantic. He had, he had no reference point because he didn't know what to do with it. He'd never, he thought Christians didn't get depressed. And so I, I realized I'm supposed to talk about this. Why am I supposed to talk about it? Because the Lord ministered to me and the Lord comforted me. See, when Jesus got into the boat, and when you're going through a trial, what you want to do is you, you don't want to hold Jesus' arm's length. You want him to get in your boat. You want to invite him in. 100%. No games, no excuses, no uh, hidden stuff. You want him in the boat with you. And you want to listen to everything he says. Because he wants to teach you. And he, want, he wants to make you a better man. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3 of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And that word comfort to us, you know, comfort today is you get your blankie and you get on the couch and you watch a Hallmark movie. I mean, in our culture, a lot of people, that's comfort, you know. Uh, the word comfort, that's not the meaning of this. The word comfort means to be fortified to be strengthened. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all fortification, strengthening, comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Watch this. Why, why do I go through affliction? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we, we ourselves are comforted by God. I ask God to use me. He's going to use me. But I got to go through the wilderness. I got to go through the storm. I got to go through the fire. And I'm stripped of my resources and all I have is him. And I'm all out of options. And not only do I not 
know what's going on. My friends can't figure out what happened to me. And they begin to peel off because they, they don't know what to say to you. That's what happened to me. People are really, not, not family, not real, real close, but some people, they just, I mean, they were stunned. What happened to Farrar? I was asking that. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also the comforts, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And then he goes on and says in 8, For we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of what affliction came to us in Asia when we were burdened excessively. Catch this now. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Well, I thought God never would afflict you beyond our strength. Beyond your strength. Which this says he does. But if, if God burdens you beyond your strength, you know what he'll do? He'll give you more strength. He'll fortify you. He'll comfort you. As your day, so shall thy strength be. You remember our affliction which came to us in Asia? We were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Watch this. So, so, so that we despaired even of life. He didn't want to live. This is the Apostle Paul. I remember when I read that, I was in the midst of that depression. I'd never seen it before that I could remember. And, and I, I, I had a wife and kids. I wasn't going to go kill myself. But for the first time in my life, I could understand why someone would be so despairing that they would. Never understood it before. But the pain and the misery was so great. But then I read this and I thought, my gosh, I can't believe Paul was that depressed. Because he was depressed. And you know what that did? Because he was depressed, it helped me feel better. And when I would tell that story, other guys who were depressed, they were comforted and they, will, they were feeling better because they didn't know anyone else who had ever been through things like that. Because when guys go through things like that, we tend not to talk about it. But see, God has just equipped you to minister to somebody. Because you think, you don't talk about because you think there's no one who understands. And what will happen is the Lord will take you through it and then he'll run you into somebody. And, you know, after a while, suddenly they'll open up and they tell you their story. And they think nobody understands. And then the Lord brings you along because you understand because you've been through it and you minister to them. We despaired even to life itself. Watch this. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Watch this. Why did all this happen? Why did this happen? Why did God do this? We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. <laughs> when you think you're finished, you're not. You just invite Jesus into your boat. Say, Lord, I can't do this. I need you. And he'll step right in. He's not against you. He's for you. So the first ingredient we saw was darkness in verse 16. Okay? Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. That's darkness. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the Sea of Capernaum. It had already become, what? Dark. Oh, and Jesus had not yet come to them. That's your delay. So you got darkness. When you're in a testing, it's going to get dark. Real dark. Depending on the intensity of the testing. Uh, it may be darker than it's ever been before in your entire life. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Verse 7, where can I flee from your presence? Verse 11, uh, uh, verse 10, even there your hand will lead me if I'm in the remotest part of the sea and your right hand will lay hold of me. Now watch this, verse 11. If I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Yeah, we get in the dark. He's never in the dark about you. Never. He knows exactly what he's doing. Even in the greatest disappointments. Well, I don't understand why he's delaying. That's because you're not God. 
well, I, I don't understand why he's doing it this way. Why is Isaiah 55.8? He told us up front. He was very honest with it. My ways are not your ways. See, I keep expecting his ways to be my ways. Then they're not. I mean, when am I going to get this? My ways, God says, are not your ways. So why am I so shocked? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are... But see, I didn't think it was... I know. I'm not God. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. I'm not going to do your life the way you think it ought to be done. I've got something better. And sometimes I'll delay and you won't, you won't understand and you won't get it. Uh, in, in verse 18, you've had difficulty. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. That's difficulty. And this, this was one intense storm. They're completely blown off course. In fact, they're not going in the direction. They're going backwards. And, and sometimes in a testing, one of the things that's frustra frustrating for guys is that we have goals and objectives and we want to achieve. And sometimes what the Lord does is, instead of enabling us to move ahead, what he does is he, he, he actually pushes us backwards. And, and we thought at this point in our life, at this age of life, I would be down the road and I would be up here. But what happens is, oftentimes in a severe testing, you're at this particular age and instead of being down the road up here, you're back here, down here. And what you start thinking is, there's no way I'll ever recover. There's no way I can ever catch up. There's no possible way I can make this up. Which brings us to distance, which is verse 19, that when they had rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. They were frightened. I mean, they're so far off course, they'll never catch up in their minds. And that's how perhaps some of you feel here tonight, if the truth were to be known. You're so behind where you thought you'd be financially. You're so behind over here or in that or in this. You think there's no possible way. Well, that leads us to destination. Verse 20. He said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Immediately. You think all that happened to Joseph... Sold into slavery at the age of 17. I mean, he was toast. You don't recover from that. You just don't recover from that. I mean, and sold to the Egyptians. Well, the Egyptians built the pyramid with slaves. He was going to be a slave. Workmen, uh, the, the Egyptians weren't real big on workmen's comp. I mean, you pulled a hamstring. I mean, they just, you know, let, let a wagon roll over you. They didn't give a rip. I mean, he was finished. He'd be lucky to be, able to, to be alive at 25. It was over. I mean, his life was over. And then he sold this guy Potiphar. And you know the story about God gave him favor. And, you know, he was promoted. And, and basically, he was running the whole deal for Potiphar, who was this high-ranking official, running his estate. And it was an estate. And God gives him favor. And then, you know, everything. Potiphar didn't make any decisions. He just gave it to Joseph. And Joseph was really doing well. He had a nice condo on the Red Sea. You know, he had a Mercedes chariot. He had the whole thing. He was doing great. Uh, Potiphar had a wife. We don't know her name. I like to call her Predator. What was going to go on with her? Well, she wanted Joseph to sleep with her. He wouldn't do it. He said, your husband's giving me everything. I'm not going to take you. And she just, and, and she was relentless. She was relentless. She was relentless. And he said no. And finally she couldn't that was it. So she lied to her husband about Joseph. He's in prison. And while, he was, while he's in prison, the Lord's still with him, and the Lord gave him favor. And these two guys have dreams, and Joseph, by the Spirit of God, is able to interpret the dreams. He says, you're going to die in three days. You're going to live. And to the guy who was going to live, he said, hey, don't forget me when you get back to Pharaoh. Don't forget me. The guy forgot him. Two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. And he pulls all his guys together, his advisors, and he tells them, and he said, you know, I can't figure this out. They can't figure it out. And the guy remembers Joseph. He said, hey, there's this Hebrew guy 
They bring him up here. They clean him up, ran him through the car wash, got him new clothes, you know, the whole thing. He goes in and he says, here's what the dream means. Da, 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 da. And you better do this and you better take 20% because there's commandment coming. And that's the only way you're going to make it. And you better appoint somebody to oversee this. He points Joseph. In 45 minutes, Joseph went from the, from the very bottom to the very top. Why is that story in the Bible? Because when you think you're finished, you're not finished. You just be faithful. You just be faithful. Invite Jesus into your boat. Do what he says. He'll get you to your destination. He who began, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Psalm 31, my times are in your hand. In my Bible, I've written right next to that, Psalm 138.8. My times are in your hand. Yeah, all my times. Okay, Psalm 138.8. What does that say? The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. I'm going to get to the destination. Not on my schedule. On his. See, this stuff will save your life. This, this is called Truth. This is called doctrine. And it's what you got to have to make it. You can't live off feelings. You can't live off of superficial Christianity. You live off the word of God. Over to Matthew. And I'm going to speed up the velocity here. In, in Matthew, what you've got you got a couple more things. As we've already seen, we've seen Peter. But we also have three other things in Matthew 14. So in verses 24... We read, but the boat was already a long distance from the land. We know it's three to four miles, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. But in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Fourth watch of the night, 3, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So they started out when it was evening. So what's evening? Let's call it 6 o'clock. So they're going to midnight. What is that, six hours? Then they're going, I mean, they're rowing. I mean, they're rowing. There's no break. Hey, I'm going to get some coffee, guys. I'll be right back. None of that. You know, I'm going to get a protein shake. I'll be right back. No, they'll <laughs> And they're getting nowhere. Till three or four or five or six. We don't know what the time frame was. I'm going to guarantee you they were discouraged. Because they, they hadn't seen the Lord come through. The longer you wait, God calls us at times to wait. And the longer you wait, the more difficult it is to wait. And because we want the Lord to come through, we want him to deliver us. But as someone has said, God's delays are not God's denials. It's just that the timing isn't right yet. Not your timing, his timing. So they're, they're discouraged. There's no progress. Then note Peter, where we read the account where he says Jesus, he sees Jesus, uh, 28. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. He got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. Watch this. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. He got distracted. And this happens in trials. In the testing of it, you get distracted. You get distracted because you might be angry. You don't understand what God's up to. And instead of tapping it down and submitting and trusting, you get angry. And then if you're not careful, you can start getting bitter. That, that, don't let that happen. He got distracted. He was looking at Jesus you know this passage, Hebrews 12. Th this is the key. 
Hebrews 11 is all about the great men and women of faith who are in God's hall of fame. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. That's a 100-mile race. That's not a sprint. That's not 100 meters. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He started out fixing his eyes on Jesus. And what happened? He got distracted. What distracted him? The wind, the waves. All of a sudden, he thought, what the heck am I doing? I mean, don't you think? He was fine. He's looking at Jesus. And he's walking on the wall. That's a miracle. Did Jesus say, hey, Peter, Peter, be careful. You could fall down and drown. Be really careful walking over to me, Peter. Did Jesus say that? No. He created his own doubt. Oftentimes, we create our own doubts. Don't we? We're the ones who get ourselves in trouble. There's no reality to the doubt. We just start doubting. You fix your eyes on Jesus. And then notice, notice what happened. He cried out. Uh, immediately, Jesus stretched out. He cries out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt. There's the doubt word. When I went through that depression, I found a book in a Christian bookstore at the very beginning of it. And I bought it because of the title, Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've told you guys about this book before. It's a book. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor before God called him in the ministry. He was a brilliant physician. He was a brilliant expositor of the word of God. I mean, this man had gifts. He could have been prime minister of England, and I'm not exaggerating. He was in line to be the physician to the queen. Handpicked, I think he graduated from medical school at 21. And Lord Horder, who was a physician to the queen, physician to the queen and the fourth prime minister, handpicked him. And he would go into the palace and meet with the queen and the royal family and the members of parliament. And what happened was he began to see that they were just like everybody else, although they had incredible privilege. Their real problem was, and they, and they had all these doubts and diseases that really didn't exist. It was in the mind. And he realized that he didn't want, he, he, and, and he became converted. And then he realized, I don't, these people, a lot of what they're saying is afflicting them physically isn't even real. But their souls are sick. He wanted to be a physician of the soul, so he became a pastor. And he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. And anyone who's in a depression, I just say, get the book. And don't read it cover to cover. Just go through the chapters. And if one stands out to you, read it. He has a chapter called Looking at the Waves. I'll give you a couple snippets and then we'll be done. Notice, notice that, did you see that back in verse 31? Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said, you of little faith. Little faith. Why did you doubt? Lloyd Jones says, This is important teaching. We thank God for it. The first thing we learn here is that, as I just said, sometimes we often produce our own doubts. Peter, by looking at the waves himself, produced the doubts. Let us be very careful here. We often lead ourselves into depression. We lead ourselves into doubts by dabbling with certain things that we should be avoiding. I'm referring to certain types of literature or to the folly of venturing into certain arguments, which will take us beyond our depth. Uh, we have people arguing all the time about things they don't know a lot about. Even in regard to the scriptures, you read something on the Internet. Some guy says, you know, you can, oh, yeah, you can't trust the word of God. I said that earlier. Well, there's probably 100 guys that have written dissertations correcting that guy and showing you why he's wrong. But it sure sounds like he's right. In an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. If you, if you are unsure about something or you read about something, go talk to someone who's further down the road in their faith than you are. They probably struggle with that, too, and they can help you. 
He says another thing. He said, the second thing I see here, and I thank God for this, is that doubts are not incompatible with faith. We all have doubts from time to time. I have many times in my pastoral experience found people who have been made very unhappy because they've not grasped the, that principle. Some people seem to think that once you became a Christian, you should never be assailed by doubts. But that is not so. Peter still had faith. Our Lord said to him, oh, you of little faith. He did not say Peter had no faith. He just had little faith. Well, the thing is, what we want to do is we want to go from little faith to big faith, to strong faith. He asked the question, how do we avoid it? He's talking about little faith. The antidote is great faith. It is little faith that allows men to be mastered by doubts. The antidote, therefore, must be a great faith, a big faith. That is the thing that is emphasized here above everything else. What are the characteristics of this great faith? The first is this. It's a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and his power and a steady trust and confidence in that. In another section, he says, it's like with doubts, it's like a snake and you put your foot on the neck and the head of the snake and that snake will keep trying to come up and you just press it down. That's what you do with doubt. You just keep your foot on it. You just keep your foot on it and you look to Christ. And then you look to scripture. He says the, the Christian faith begins and ends with the knowledge of the Lord. It begins with a knowledge of the Lord, not a feeling, not an act of will, but a knowledge of Christ. And then he goes on and says, in other words, the great antidote to, spirit to spiritual depression is the knowledge of biblical doctrine, Christian doctrine. Not having the feelings worked up in meetings, but knowing what God says in his word, knowing who he is, knowing about that he's all powerful, that he has all wisdom, that he is good, that he is holy, that he is available, that he's abundantly available for tight places. In other words, you take the truth about God, which only comes from the scripture, and what you do, you put that in your mind as you read the scripture. And then I, I mentioned last Monday, I had to fight off some depression like I haven't had to do in a long time. It took me a couple hours. What was I doing? I was getting myself straight in my mind and I was fighting off wrong thoughts. So what was I doing? I was basically doing Psalm 42. Why are you in despair? Oh, my soul. You talk to yourself. Why am I in despair? Oh, my soul. And why are you cast down within me? And so here are all the reasons. Here are all the reasons. Here are the waves. Here's the wind. Here's the storm. This is why I'm cast down. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. So I'm, I'm kicking that around in my head. All right. Listen, you know the truth. All right. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. God knows all about this. There's a reason this happened. There's a reason this occurred. There's a reason for the disappointment. It comes down to trust. We all deal with this stuff, and there are no shortcuts to big faith. It's a slow process. Have you noticed there's not just one testing of your faith? The Lord will get you through it, and then there's a season, you know, of where things are relatively calm. And then guess what? Another test is coming. I'm just here to encourage you. <laughs> now, what's it going to be? How severe is it going to be? I don't know. The Lord oversees all that. But what's he doing? He wants to build my muscle of faith. He wants to make me into a man who trusts him. And in these times where everything is unstable, unsure, things are insecure, what is needed? Men of God who are stable, who are confident, whose hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. So you're on the rock. You've seen him be faithful to you. You've seen, he got me through that storm, he got me through that storm, he got me through that storm, he got through, why would he not get me through this storm? He's a savior. Lord, help me to learn the lessons. Help me to learn the lessons. And he will. And that muscle of faith is growing. And when a real hard one comes and blindsides you, 
It won't knock you out like it would have done 25 or 30 years ago. Because you're in shape spiritually. And you got that faith in him, in him. And you know that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. We're in good hands. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the truth. Thank you for the trials which cause us to grow. Give us teachable hearts. And Father, you didn't design us to go through trials by ourselves. You didn't send the disciples out one by one. You sent them out two by two. We, we can't live in isolation. We need a Christian friend, a companion. In an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. He who walks with wise men will be wise. We need God's people. We need godly friends. Thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.